Hey, what's up everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Crime and Court USA. I'm your host, Mundo Cario, and this is a podcast where we're going to talk about crime, we're going to talk about some court proceedings, and it's all going to take place right here in the USA. So before we get started, let me tell you a little about myself. I covered cops and courts for the Albuquerque Journal in New Mexico for about five and a half years. I would cover crimes uh, for all from the um, investigation process, sometimes even before charges were filed, all the way through the court process, all the way to a conviction or no conviction and beyond. And that also included some civil stuff. So not all of it was crime related, but it was, um, yeah, again, mostly court related, we'll say, because obviously crime legal document, or criminal documents are filed in the court system. So it was all uh, related to the judicial system here in New Mexico. And I, I want to do something else, man. I want to take that, take everything I learned covering the, the court system here and take the next step. And I thought podcasting would be that next step. So I quit my job. I just full on just left uh, to start this podcast. So took that leap of faith and I'm glad that uh, you guys are with me on this journey because it is going to be a journey. <laughs> we are going to learn as we go along here, but it will get better. I'm telling you, we'll get better every day I put in the work. Uh, I'm thinking about ways I can improve this. So again, this is the first episode. Hey, we can only get better from here, guys. So uh, thanks for tuning in and thanks for bearing with me. The biggest news to talk about this week would be what's going on in Minnesota. More unrest there. Let's just get into it. Protests continue or the death of an unarmed black man during a traffic stop as the trial of a former police officer accused of killing another black man during an arrest last year keeps coming to a close. On Tuesday, Officer Kim Potter, who is a 26-year veteran of the Brooklyn Center Police Department, resigned after she fatally shot 20-year-old Dante Wright on Sunday. Potter said in a statement that her resignation was, quote, in the best interest of the community, end quote. Also on Tuesday, Brooklyn Center Police Chief Tim Gannon resigned. So both of them gone as of Tuesday. Gannon, at a news conference on Monday, said he believes Potter mistakenly thought she had her taser in her hand when in fact she actually had her handgun and shot right. A lapel cam video from Potter has been released. It's her lapel video, so it shows her perspective of what happened. And that was released during the press conference on Monday. I watched it and... You could see, or sorry, Wright, uh, he, he's taken out of his car. He, he was uh, apparently pulled over for having expired tags. And then as they were checking out his information, they found that he had an active arrest warrant. So, of course, they had to take him into custody. So uh, so he's outside his car. Uh, there's another officer who's handcuffed him behind his back. And for some reason, Wright sort of tries to escape. He tries to jump back into the driver's seat of his car. And of course, uh, that leads to a struggle with officers who, you know, they, they got to arrest him. Uh, as there's sort of a struggle, right? I'm sorry, Potter, uh, the officer Potter, she says that she's going to tase him. She's, you know, she starts warning him. And you see her 
gun sort of appear on the screen again this is like from her perspective and her gun sort of appears on the screen and she points it at right and again warns him that she's gonna tase him she says taser 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 and that she shoots him like pretty much point blank and then immediately you can see how she's kind of like shocked that oh shoot like i just shot him and right actually drives away and as he drives away you could hear potter tell her fellow officers that she shot him right joe for several blocks before he crashed into another vehicle and he was later pronounced dead at the scene he had a warrant uh he missed a court appearance apparently on misdemeanor charges of carrying a pistol without a permit and running from police last june washington county attorney pete orput said he is reviewing the case and will make a determination about possible criminal charges by Wednesday. So that's the day this podcast goes live. So unfortunately, we won't have that decision in this week's episode, but we will have it in next week's episode. So on Sunday, protesters started gathering at the Brooklyn Center Police Department where they threw bricks and cans at officers and at least 20 businesses at a nearby mall had been broken into, reportedly. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry declared a state of emergency and issued a 7 p.m. curfew for Monday night, or for Monday evening, rather. So on Monday, there, of course, were still protesters at the Brooklyn Center Police Station. And at 7 p.m., that crowd was declared unlawful. So officers used tear gas to disperse the crowd. And as of Monday night, at least 40 demonstrators had been arrested. And for that segment, I used uh, the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, and USA Today, Huge shout out to all the reporters who are out there on the ground uh, reporting all this for us. So we appreciate y'all. As this is happening, the trial of a former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, continues as it kind of hurls towards its conclusion. Derek Chauvin is charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder and manslaughter, and the death of 46-year-old George Floyd last May. Most of us have heard about this at this point. But I don't know if everyone has seen the video, but according to the video from a from a bystander, Chauvin can be seen uh, holding his neck, sorry, holding his knee to Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. Floyd was arrested on suspicion of using a counterfeit twenty dollar bill when Chauvin put him in handcuffs, placed him on his stomach on the ground, and held a knee to his neck, pinned him on the ground. For again, several minutes before paramedics arrived, there was one point where Floyd actually stopped moving. You could hear him saying that he can't breathe. You could hear him screaming for his mom, all that stuff. You know, it's 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 a horrifying video. For the people I've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It's just, it's really hard to watch. So, again, Derek Chauvin is on trial. He was fired not long after that after that incident last May, and now he's on trial for murder. I'm sure most of you guys know, but for those who don't. During a trial, it's the state's case, right? So the prosecution goes first. The, the trial started on May 29th, began with opening statements from the, the prosecution, and then an opening statement from the defense. And then again, it's the prosecution's case. So the prosecution calls all of its witnesses and does what it has to do to, to prove its case, right? So for the first about 10 days or so, we all heard from uh, the prosecution's witnesses and so finally on Tuesday, we got to hear from some defense witnesses, some, some witnesses that the defense was calling to help prove its case or to help fight its case. So on Tuesday, 
there was a former police officer and use of force expert named Barry Broad who said Chauvin's use of force was justified and that it actually followed department policies of the Minneapolis Police Department. That is actually contrary to what Minneapolis Police Department officers said as they were prosecution witnesses saying that he didn't follow department policy when detaining Floyd. That's kind of indirect uh, contradicting to each other. Also on Tuesday, uh, another officer who responded to the call about George Floyd. Again, uh, someone called 911 off Floyd because they thought he used a $20 bill to buy cigarettes at a convenience store type place. And one of the officers who got there, or who was there rather, for that, said that the crowd was, was getting a little hostile towards officers during that whole incident. And that is one thing that the defense mentioned in its opening statement. I actually watched both the, the prosecution's opening statement and the defense's opening statement. Yeah, the defense tried to say that uh, drugs actually led to Floyd's death. He apparently did a speedball, which is a mix of heroin and meth, in a car shortly before he was arrested. And again, the defense making the argument that those drugs actually led to his death and not asphyxiation from Chauvin's knee. And another thing that the defense kind of hinged on was that the the crowd was getting kind of hostile towards officers outside the grocery store. And that's, that kind of made, sorry, I keep like touching the mic stand here. My bad. Um, And that that kind of led to Chauvin's aggressive actions, I suppose. Sorry, I know I'm kind of, I'm kind of summing up defense arguments and prosecution arguments, not so eloquently, but that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, the, the prosecution, of course, arguing that Chauvin's direct actions caused Floyd's death. So we're going to hear from the defense witnesses for a little while. The judge in the case did say that he expects the closing arguments to happen on Monday. And after closing arguments, then the case will go to the jury and it will stay with the jury as long as the jury needs to, to come to a conclusion. Now that conclusion could either be guilty on all counts, guilty on some counts, not guilty of any of the counts, you know, not guilty on some counts, or we could have a mistrial where they basically don't come to a unanimous decision on any of the counts or some of the counts. But again, they're all kind of like murder or death related again, charges of murder and manslaughter. So what happens with the mistrial is that the, the case could, could be tried again, but if he's acquitted, then that's it. He's acquitted of the charges, found guilty, then obviously uh, found guilty, and then he'll be sentenced. Again, that's on Monday, so we'll have closing arguments and possibly a verdict by next week's episode. We'll see how that shakes out. Now, I don't really want to give you too much of my opinion on this podcast. I do want to play it straight and give you the objective news as best I can, but I also want to give you my analysis on things as a former court reporter. And that's, I guess, inherently my opinion. But I think this is an uphill battle for the defense. Um, Again, we up until this point, up until this recording, we have mostly heard from the prosecution. So we're getting basically one side of it until the defense starts calling his witnesses. So maybe the scales will kind of tip here. But again, just to, to me, again, this is this is my analysis. The arguments of a drug overdose leading to death as opposed to the asphyxiation from the knee on the neck doesn't seem as strong. It doesn't seem as strong as an argument as saying straight up that the, the knee to the back of the head, to, to the neck, 
caused caused the death. Again, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone committed these crimes. So maybe some doubt will seep into a juror's mind, um, and that, that can get them off. I mean, who knows? You you can never predict where, how a jury's going to go. Trust me, I've tried, and it doesn't always work out. Conventional wisdom usually is though that the longer a jury takes to come to a verdict, the better it is for the defense in some ways, either through it, th- well, usually through a mistrial. Honestly, um, the, the longer a jury takes, the, the more likely it is that it will end in a mistrial. Now, with the mistrial, you could retry the case with a fresh jury at a later time, or you could just drop the charges. Back when I was at the Santa Fe New Mexican uh, in New Mexico covering sports, there was a police shooting in Albuquerque where two officers with the, with the Albuquerque Police Department killed a homeless man who was camping out in the foothills east of town. So they were charged with murder, but their case actually ended with a mistrial, which again means that the jury couldn't come to a decision unanimously. I remember, I want to say, I don't want to misspeak here, but I want to say most of those jurors actually voted for a guilty verdict, but not all of them, right? So that leads to a mistrial and the district attorney just decided to not try the case again. So they basically had their charges dropped. I don't know what's going to happen here. I do know that officers rarely get convicted in use of force cases. They usually, I mean, they usually don't even get charged with use of force a lot of times. I think that kind of has changed in recent years as body cameras and cell phone cameras and all that stuff kind of shined a light on what was going on. But yeah, it's, um, it's hard to convict a, an officer for something like this. Not saying it won't happen, but it's, it's usually pretty difficult. So we'll see what happens next week. We'll have something for you guys, whether that's closing arguments or verdict, something we'll keep you guys posted on what's going on with this trial. The biggest trial, I think, in a long, long time in American history. Crazy stuff, man. I remember, so again, this happened last May. I was still reporting for the Albuquerque Journal, and there were protests all over the country. And there was a protest here in Albuquerque that I had to go cover. It was peaceful. <laughs> so yeah, it started from the University of New Mexico and went all the way to a park in downtown Albuquerque, a couple miles away, and then all the way back. There were, it's hard to estimate crowd size, right? But I would say there was more than a thousand people. So everyone marched from the university all the way to downtown and then back and it was peaceful. It really was. I mean, there were some people spray painting, which is technically, that's a crime. Okay, sure. <laughs> but, you know, there was no, there were no clashes with police. There were no clashes with counter protesters. There was none of that. And so we made it all the way to downtown and back without incident, really. The cops kept their distance, I think, very smartly. They did their jobs as far as making sure nothing got out of hand and that demonstrators themselves were protected and all that good stuff. But they also kept their distance because, you know, I suppose that they felt they got too close to the protest that there would be a clash. So I think they very smartly kept enough distance to not do that. And at the end of the day, I remember I went home just, you know, thinking about how proud I was for Albuquerque throughout the day and throughout that whole weekend. There were, there was like a lot of looting and and stuff, a lot of, a lot of rioting around the country. And I was so proud that Albuquerque didn't do that. But (laughs) at about 1am, I get a call from my editor saying they're setting fires and breaking windows downtown. Like, oh, no, we were so close, man. We were so close. So, yeah, I get up. I mean, I was like about to go to bed. I had a long day of walking, you know. (laughs) It was a super long day. And I think I had to cover like an active shooter situation in the morning. So it was a super long day. 
I'm like, uh, so I get up, I get up, I drive downtown. Sure enough, there are people breaking windows. First off, I want to say that I don't think anyone from the, the peaceful protest earlier was out here breaking windows. I, I do I know people kind of tied it together saying that the protest led to rioting. I, I don't even think that's fair. I think this was a completely different group of people. A lot of them I saw were pretty young, you know? So yeah, I went down there, they were smashing windows, setting trash cans on fire. <laughs> In fact, I remember as soon as I got there, there was a guy, he was putting a bunch of cardboard into a trash can. And I was thinking, oh, hey, nice. Look at this guy, you know, cleaning up and, and taking care of his community. And, you know, amid, amid all this chaos that's going out out here in the middle of the night. And then he lit it on fire. I was like, oh, man, come on. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was quite a scene. Like the, the cops were out there and they're full on riot gear. They were in like a formation that a big old line. Pretty scary stuff. I don't even think anyone was arrested. They just like dispersed the crowd trying to go home. And that was that. Yeah, again, this is one of the biggest uh, trials in recent American history. So we will keep you all posted on that. And of course, the source that I used for this segment were the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, and my own memory. So move on to another very tragic story. On April 7th, former NFL player Philip Adams killed five people, including two children, in South Carolina before taking his own life. A sixth victim died from his injuries on Saturday. So Adams, who played six seasons in the NFL, shot two air-conditioned technicians outside the home of Dr. Robert Leslie in Rock Hill, South Carolina, before going inside the house and killing Leslie, his wife, and their two grandchildren, ages five and nine. Adams was later found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in a bedroom of a home that he shared with his parents that was only about a half mile away from Leslie's home. And police cannot figure out why Adams did that. I saw some stories that uh, said that Leslie treated Adams. I'm not sure what for. Obviously, that's that's confidential information. That's protected medical information. But the two did have a relationship, and they couldn't figure out why this happened. So very tragic there. But I wanted to bring this up because, by, by all accounts, Adams was just a quiet, a quiet guy, you know, didn't show any violent tendencies. And he pulled something like this, and I think this is very common with former NFL players due to a CTE, due to the, to the brain damage that they get from playing football. I don't know if you guys saw the uh, ESPN 30 for 30 about Junior Seau. Junior Seau is very near and dear to me because I was born in San Diego. I have a lot of family in San Diego. So I grew up a huge San Diego Chargers fan. And like I, I love Junior Seau. Like, he was the reason like I wanted to play football as a kid. And just watching that documentary, which is really good, by the way, you guys check it out if you haven't seen it. it. It documents his sort of, his start in the NFL and how he was just a real, like real nice, just like real jovial, friendly guy. And how he kind of dissented into a, I don't know, just being kind of a jerk, honestly, you know, as, as time went on, as he left the NFL, uh, just being real mean to his family, sort of alienating his children that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, he, he kind of, his his personality just really changed. And you see that a lot. I think uh, I heard that about Dave Duerson, who was on the, uh, who was on the, the 85 Bears, who was considered the, the best team of all time. And, you know, he, again, you know, described as like a real nice dude and 
was kind of mean towards the end of his uh, end of his life, and he did take his own life just as a uh, Junior Seau did. So, you know, uh, I I love football, man. Like I really do. Uh, you know, I played it when I was a kid. It was really the only sport that I was ever really decent at. And I, just, I love watching it on Sundays, Saturdays and Sundays, right? You got the, the college on Saturday, the pros on Sundays, and I don't do anything over the weekend during football season because I'm just glued to the TV watching football. But I got to tell you, man, it's been getting harder and harder to watch just knowing what the game does to people. I mean, it completely ruins their lives sometimes, and that cannot be overlooked. It, it really just can't. I highly recommend a book called League of Denial. It was about how the NFL basically did everything it could to cover up the fact that football caught his brain damage. Really good book, but it also documents a lot of former players who were affected by the brain damage they got. Playing football, the CTE, that basically causes a neurological, neurodegenerative effects that include mood swings, memory loss, impulsive behavior. I mean, you read these stories, man, it's just so heartbreaking. So... I just want to bring that up because, again, we got to talk about this kind of stuff, man. Football, it can't take a toll on you. And I feel guilty because I love it. <laughs> a lot of people love it. I mean, it's huge. It's absolutely huge here in America. We all love it. It's, it's our new favorite pastime. Sorry, baseball. You know, it is what it is. But a lot of people love it, man. I think it's, it's important to understand that it does cause these kinds of issues. Even a few years back, in 2012, Kansas City Chiefs linebacker Javon Belcher, he fatally shot his girlfriend, 22-year-old Cassandra Perkins. He then drove to Arrowhead Stadium and shot himself in front of general manager Scott Pioli and head coach Romeo Cornell. Uh, he was only 25, and he played in all 11 games for the Chiefs that season. He was a contributing player and took his own life. I don't know if it was CTE that, that caused that or if he was just a violent guy already in general, but, I mean, something, something was wrong there, man. Of course, rest in peace to him and his and his girlfriend. Very sad, very sad. Actually, scientists are going to study Adams's brain. Actually, scientists at Boston University are going to study Adams's brain for CTE. And I, I remember, and, and if you read the book uh, *League of Denial*, which again I highly recommend, uh, after Junior Seau killed himself, there was like a mad dash among scientists to try to get his brain, to try to study it. He wasn't dead for too long before family members started getting hit up by all these scientists wanting his brain. Can you imagine? But again, I think we need to understand what's really going on here. League of Denial, 30 for 30 by Junior Seau. Go check it out. Good stuff. And of course, for that story, I used uh, sources from CNN, the New York Post, and ESPN. Lastly, I kind of want to mention uh, something going on with the Supreme Court. I don't want to get into it too much because it's kind of new and we'll see how it goes. But President Joe Biden signed an executive order that creates a commission to study Supreme Court reform. That commission will look at the size of the court and lifetime appointments. For some reason, I've been hearing about this effort, or not an effort, but just a talk of expanding the Supreme Court. People saying that that will make it too political, and they think that Democrats are expanding it to get more influence. Most of the justices on the court now are conservative, so they kind of want to tilt the scales, I guess. Pardon the pun. Yeah, we'll see. Again, that that's new. That just got established, so we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Actually, Justice Stephen Breyer, he said that expanding the court would erode the public trust because it would it would make it political. So people don't like politics in the Supreme Court. Although, I mean, it's always mentioned how one 
one judge is conservative, another judge is liberal, stuff like that. It already is like a political thing. As much as people like to think it's not, it really is. <laughs> and I, yeah, may, making it more political, some argue. Uh, or sorry, may, making it bigger will make it more political, some argue. We will keep an eye on that. And um, that's about it for this first episode. If you made it all the way to this point, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Again, I don't come from a podcasting background. I come from more of a print background where I don't even have to talk, really. So this is all new to me, but everything is going to get better from here. So I appreciate y'all making it to this point. I appreciate you guys helping me on, on my journey here as I start this. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back better next week, man. Welcome back. Appreciate y'all. Maybe you can hit me up on Twitter at Mundo Carrillo. Oh boy, what else? What else should I let you guys know? That's about it, man. I'm planning on publishing these every Wednesday. So look out for these every Wednesday on podcast services. And I'll be back next week. Later.